Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 124. If you like Santorini, try dot 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 we like to thank Vinny and Abby from Double Exposure for inviting us to Dexcon 2017 you're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming it's sort of like Voltron but with better lip syncing find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Hey, Anthony, what's going on, my friend? Not a whole lot. Ready for this long weekend. All right. So, yeah, it's going to pop up on the 4th of July weekend when you'll be listening to this episode. So, everyone in the U.S., uh, let's all go out and celebrate our independence. And to our friends around the world, it's a good time to get some new games to the table. So, hopefully, you've been playing some of those new Origins releases. I know that we have, and been getting some games to the table. Yeah, a whole bunch. We'll be talking about them the next few weeks. Probably half the games we talked about last week in our Origins Hotness review yep. have been floating around in some form or another. So, I'm going to talk about one of them today. I have another one next week and another one the week after that. So <laughs> trying to knock them all out before we get to Gen Con because that list is already up on BGG sure. and it's already giving me headaches because it's like 10 pages already with a month and a half to go. Lots of planning. Great. Yeah, if Origins was any kind of indicator of what gaming year the industry is going to have, it's going to be pretty big. I mean, not to mention the fact that Gen Con is going to have its, what, 50th anniversary here? Yeah, so apparently that's huge. Like, I've talked to a few people. Not only, they sent a press release out, I think, last week, where they're going to cap badge sales for the first time. 
So they're getting to that point, I think, where they're not going to be able to sell. I don't know if it's just the four-day passes or if it's all passes, but I think they're reaching whatever maximum amount of people they think they can handle is. But also, I was talking to a couple of people who are having trouble you know, getting booths or maybe the cost is higher. I'm not sure exactly what the logistics are there. We're not getting a booth, so we don't have to worry about that. But uh, there's a ton of demand. So a lot of people just kind of went into a wait list or a lottery or however they do that. So yeah, it's going to be crazy. I look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> you say that now. Let's let's see after a couple of days how you're feeling about that. Yeah, last year was pretty insane. The industry is growing rapidly. There's a lot more people coming to gaming. So all really positive signs and indicators. Obviously, PAX Unplugged will be coming up in November. So to see another major convention pop up on the calendar is really, really amazing and really great to see. And I don't know how Gen Con is going to handle the increase because the last couple of years, it's been almost like a near panic trying to get through those crowds. So hopefully they got some magic there, right? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. If you want an indication of how big this little corner of the hobby has become, Mattel is getting a booth at Gen Con. So they're like, oh, yeah, we could do some of this hobby (laughs) stuff. And so when the multi-billion dollar company is trying to get in on the action, you know, you, you know, you've got something. Yeah. Hasbro's talking about doing a con themselves, and there's also going to be a Hasbro box mail subscription that you can order, so you can get games sent to your house. So, yeah. Wow. What kind of games are you going to get, though? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. How many versions of Risk do I need? <laughs> well, whatever you have, you could probably use one more. <laughs> <laughs> or actually the most recent Monopoly Gamer, which is kind of really the super new hotness for about five minutes until it burns out just like pokemon go but a lot of people are picking up those blind packs and is enjoying mario i guess yeah i'm sure i'm gonna end up with some because my (laughs) my six-year-old loves mario okay Uh, i'm not i'm not really personally obsessed with this uh because it's got monopoly brand on there there you go but we'll see all right All right, so this week we are talking about the recent Kickstarter overwhelming success, Santorini, and how it's been hitting all our tables, how we've been loving this really unique and beautiful abstract game, and what games you might want to try out if you do love Santorini for its mechanics or themes or a number of other things. So before we get into that, let's talk about our acquisition disorders. Anthony, what do you have up for us this week? All right, so... uh... This one, I feel like we talked about a little bit last week, but this is a new game coming from Smirk and Dagger called Paramedics Clear. I think it's a Gen Con release, but Kurt did give us a little bit of time, showed us through the game, and so this is something I'm pretty excited to see. Hold on a second. Isn't it Paramedics Clear? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I think Kurt would want you to say it that way. <laughs> it's true. I'm looking at the text here, and it is Paramedics colon Clear! So... <laughs> And you know what? You probably should say it that way because that is exactly what this game is. It comes with this companion app with a 60-second timer. Uh, I think it goes down to as little as 30 seconds at some point. But basically on your turn, you're going to have that much time to take actions to stabilize the patients that you have. And that involves, you know, turning in certain things to get the medicine or the the stretcher or the oxygen or whatever it is they need. It'll be printed on their card. And so from like a mechanic standpoint, it seems fairly simple, but only having a few seconds and needing to kind of puzzle out, you know, the combinations of things you need to put out there to to make it happen combined with the fact that other people can totally mess with you because of course it's smirk and dagger means that this is going to be one of the most stressful board games I'll ever play. 
But at the same time, it, it is very interesting. I don't usually go for the high, high stress timer based games. Uh, Fuse is fun, but it stresses me out a little bit. Flatline is fun, but it stresses me out a little bit. But there was just something about this one. I don't know. Maybe it's the fact that you're messing with other people and it's not cooperative. So if I mess up, I'm messing myself up. I don't feel like I'm messing it up for everybody at the table. Yeah, I don't know. I'm definitely going to track this down at Gen Con. Uh, Kurt did confirm that it'll be it'll be there. So I'm pretty excited to see the final version. Yeah, I really like the mechanic that you get two patient cards. You pick one and you give one to the next player. And they don't know how you know, tragic this person's been injured. And what's really funny about this game, which you maybe don't get from the title, is the injuries are very comedic. So it's not a realistic type of, like, injury, but you're still applying medical kind of, I guess, knowledge or treatments or something like that. But really interesting mechanics and nice little twist in the theming. Yeah, yeah. And that, that I think that is important, too, because if you look at this, you don't want to be like, oh, that seems like a heavy theme. Sure. Like, the injuries are like, you know, board game injury and it's a guy like lying under a table or <laughs> brought a knife to a gunfight, you yeah. know, like things like that. Silly little puns. So it, it's still you are still treating people in the back of an ambulance and they can die. So it, it could get a little heavy, but I, th- I feel like he's done a decent job of, you know, lightening the mood <laughs> with the game. One of the games I'm looking forward to is the Founders of Gloomhaven. This yeah. is Isaac Childress, right? You know all about this, Anthony. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. I did not get a chance to get on the Gloomhaven wagon. I just don't have the crew for it and haven't had the time to do a solo play like Anthony's doing at the moment. But I really did appreciate this outstanding theme and all of the work that went into it. So when I heard that there was going to be a game that's going to have tile placement, worker placement, it's going to have variable player powers, you're going to be network building, and there's going to be an auction bidding mechanic, I was in because... This man knows how to put together a game, and it's just really, really, really surprising to see something radically different, but also connected. And in this way, it's it's a bit of a prequel, because what's going on here is you are one of the founders of Gloomhaven. So basically the people who build up that wonderful kind of realm that other players are now going through that giant kind of RPG. So with the founders of Gloomhaven, it's a competitive tile placement game. And action selection and how the designer talked about this was it mixes Concordia and Puerto Rico. And when he said that, I already bought the game and he doesn't even know it yet. So we're good. (laughs) And by that, he means that with the Concordia mechanic that you're going to be selecting cards that you're going to be playing as actions. And then there's going to be a, a time where you pull the cards up. There's going to be a voting mechanic in the game. So... I love playing those cards for actions. That's really interesting by being able to do that. And obviously building up an economic engine that you can score points and you can trade resources and there's route building. And most importantly, you can't do this alone since you are building this city together. There is, I wouldn't say a co-op element to it, but there is some sort of like Terra Mystica element where building next to each other and how strategically you put your building together will benefit each other in order to build additional resources. Really interested in this game. Looking forward for this to coming out. Um, Isaac has done such an outstanding job with Gloomhaven, so hopefully this is my Gloomhaven of a game. Yeah, yeah. I was actually a little disappointed when he decided to launch the Gloomhaven reprint ahead of this because this was what originally that Kickstarter was going to be. Mm. Although apparently he's taken that time to 
polish it up a little bit. So there's a few more things you wanted to work on. So the game will be much closer to being done when the Kickstarter goes up. But I'm with you, man. I'm super psyched. Like, I want to go back into that world, but with a Euro? Yeah. <laughs> and you could speak to the theme. You really you really enjoy it. It's really flushed out really well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's not, it's a very combat-driven dungeon crawl. Mm-hmm. So it's not like this huge amount of lore, but Isaac's a pretty good writer. So like going through those different scenarios, there's a lot of interesting things happening that kind of flow together and being able to take that and see what happens, you know, in the mechanics that I generally enjoy the most. That's that's going to be pretty cool. All right. So that's everything on our acquisition disorder. Now to our at the table BGA. Anthony, what have you been getting to the table this week? Okay, so I got uh, a copy right after we got back from Origins. Uh, The guys at Brotherwise uh, shot over a copy of Unearth. So Unearth is uh, the first non-boss monster release from Brotherwise Games. And it is coming, I believe if you pre-order it, you'll get it sometime in the next month. And I think the the general release is Gen Con. So if you'll be at Gen Con, it will be there as well. I will Um, be at Gen Con. You will. (laughs) Wait, so will I. There you go. (laughs) What's the odds? <laughs> but the game itself, like if you were at Origins, you probably saw it, even if you didn't play it, because it has this fantastic artwork. Uh, it immediately looks like Monument Valley, if you've ever played that app. And kind of the, the Escher-esque paintings of these different types of cities, very pastel And the whole idea of the game is that you are delvers who are digging uh, for ruins and trying to find these different stones and build these different wonders. So... I think there's there's a tagline, I can't remember off the top of my head, but basically you're trying to discover and then reclaim these old ruins and then rebuild. Um, and so how you do that is you roll dice and you place those dice on five one of five different cards out on the table, one die at a time. If you roll between a one and a three, you get a stone token. Uh, the stone tokens are then placed in front of you in a tableau and you build little circles with them. If you complete one of those circles, you get to take a wonder uh, based on which color of stones are in your uh, little circle. So you have that set collection aspect there. And then the other half is trying to score and win those cards in the middle of the table. So for those, the, the goal is to break the number on them, very similar to smash up. So the numbers are usually between nine and I think 17 and the total of all the dice on them needs to break that number. And whoever has the highest single die on there, um, wins the card, not the most dice, not the total value, the highest single die. So you could have a D6 with a five on it, and somebody else could have four dice on there all with fours, and you still win the card. But because they have those four dice on there, they get to draw cards. So that's pretty cool. The goal of those cards is to build sets. There are, I think, five or six of each color. So one is worth two, two is worth six, three is worth 10 or 15, four is worth 20, and I think five is worth 30. So it's pretty difficult to get a set of five, but if you can do it, probably win the game. The game takes about an hour. It's super simple to teach. Artwork is fantastic. And it is definitely, you know, a lighter weight game. I think it's a two uh, on BGG, and I I would agree with that. But as far as lighter one-hour games that take about an hour to play, it is, you know, one that I really, really enjoy. So I think this game is going to be pretty hot. I, I, I see a lot of buzz around it. They have a big boss monster community. I actually had somebody from my old job in New York who played my copy of Boss Monster at lunch while I still worked there, uh, texted me and asked, have you seen this game on Earth? Is it any good? So I know it's buzzing around out there, and uh, I, I think it's something that's worth the buzz. Um, it's a pretty fun game. It's not doing anything revolutionary in terms of mechanics, but 
doing those two different areas where you have to manage your stones and the cards makes for a pretty unique um, gameplay experience. So at the price point, I think it's only 35. And if you pre-order, it's 30, possibly. It's definitely a buy. So you should definitely check this one out. All right. Yeah, I'm really glad that they're branching out. They did such a good, solid theming with Boss Monster that I'm really glad that they're getting to something a little more crunchy. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I would say it's definitely a step, a single step (laughs) above Boss Monster in complexity. Not a lot. It's not a Euro, but like that one step up, which is cool. Good. So they finally get into the bigger market there. Excellent. All right. So I want to talk about a game that uh, I got a chance to get to the table. Thanks to our friend Howard. And that's Kanagawa. This is a game by Yellow from uh, Bruno Cathala and Charles Chevalier. And basically what you're doing is you are a student in a painting school and you are one of the disciplines of the great master. And you are trying to show off your artistic skills by painting this wondrous, harmonious print um, by basically doing a sort of set collection in order to be able to hit certain goals on these different cards. Now, the set collection mechanic is pretty interesting because you start off with you start off with a very long card, and on the top part of the card is this display. And typically, it's a kind of a mountain area region, and there's going to be a symbol on the top right that's going to represent one of the seasons. Now, why that's important is because while the first piece of this print that you get is very simplistic, the season based upon how many similar symbols that you get in a row, you will score points for that in the game. Also on top, there's going to be victory point symbols that will also score you victory points at the end of the game. And in addition to that, you will have options, which I'll explain in a little bit, to pick up additional cards that will add to that display. And those cards will have animals, they will have buildings, they will have trees, they will have characters there. So there is a number of different set collections that you're trying to get as you build this beautiful Pamerana across. Now, on the bottom of the card, what you're going to have is, typically to start off with, you're going to get two kind of like paint bottles with paintbrushes. Now, this is a really interesting slash weird kind of little token thing that is almost looks identical to a little tiny bottle and brush. And then it's going to have different mechanics that are available for you to use to move that bottle and brush around in order to paint with different colors. Now, on the bottom of each print where it shows the display, on the bottom is going to give you an option to use a different paint color. Now, when you pick up these different pictures, they're going to have a requirement in order to paint that picture. So maybe it's just one color, maybe it's two colors. So you have to make sure those little pots of paint are strategically placed on the bottom so you can paint certain prints. Otherwise, you can't paint that print. So there's a little bit of, I wouldn't say worker placement as far as that's concerned, but you are kind of activating the bottom tiles to be able to get a benefit to paint a top part of the picture. So as the game goes on, you're trying to manage a lot of things like managing the cards with the weather on top. You're trying to build the the greatest print the fastest as possible because you want to get to 12 in order to end the game. And at the same time, the bottom has a number of different mechanics that will move the apprentice and the master around. It will allow you to paint with different colors. It'll score you victory points. So a number of different things, a number of different symbols to try to get in your painting. And based upon those symbols, you'll be able to score victory point tokens and sometimes either get these little cloudy, rainy tokens that can kind of hide whatever season that 
card may be in order to kind of like give you a wild symbol so you can get more of that scoring opportunity to have same seasons in a row. The game is fun. It's light. It reminded me of Tokonoko as far as it's just a very serene game. You're you're kind of like slowly building this Pamarana with all these different characters and buildings and trees and there's little paints on the bottom. So it's quick, it's fun, it's simple. The game is definitely worth the play. It's on the light side, but it's very enjoyable on the light side. So if you're looking for a end of the game kind of filler or if you're looking for something to get to the with the family, I think everyone would enjoy this game. Awesome. Right. Yeah, I've seen this one around. It looks beautiful. All right. So that's everything at our table. Now let's get on to the feature review. So for our feature review, we're going to be talking about, if you like Santorini, try these other games. Now, you don't necessarily have to love Santorini, but you might like some of the mechanics that Santorini employs in this game can be also found in a number of other games. And those games could either kind of expand your love or kind of take you into a brand new direction. So, Anthony, you already own this game from the Kickstarter. Why don't you tell us about it? All right, so Santorini is an abstract game. You wouldn't know it by looking at it because it is incredibly overproduced, which I'm totally fine with. It's beautiful. Uh, But the game itself is very, very simple. What you have is two builders. You place them on this grid map. I guess it's just a grid on, on the board. And then every turn you will move one of those builders and then build something. And you can build something adjacent to where you are. And there are three levels to each building. So you'll be building either a base, a middle, or a top. Or you can cap it. Um, There's a a little blue dome you can put on the very top. And what you're trying to do is move to the top of one of these towers. If you get to the top, the third level, and your little guy is standing at the third level, you win the game. So what you're doing is you're trying to build while simultaneously blocking your opponent from being able to get to the third level by moving one of your guys around uh, to put domes on their uh, different buildings. The twist here is that you have variable player powers. So everybody gets a special card, a thematic god or hero power each game. That allows them to break the game in slightly different ways. So nothing substantial, but maybe you know take an extra move here or there or place something two spaces away or you know just little twists on the game that make it more interesting. And both people have that. So the... Game itself is, again, a pure strategy, abstract game. But And if you look on BGG, you can see the original version of this game that the designer made back in 2004, and it's just stones on a board, you know, what you'd expect. So it is kind of the super deluxified version of that. Um, but at its core, you have those basic components. You have grid movement, you have, you know, uh, piece placement, and you were just basically trying to outmaneuver your opponent like so many classic abstract games. All right, excellent. So we're going to talk about two of the mechanics that Santorini employs. And to start off with, I'm going to start off with competitive tile placement. Now, I know for many of you, you probably played Carcassonne at some point. So you're somewhat familiar with this competitive placement here. But I want to take you a little bit deeper and a little bit more in the Santorini style about where you place and how you place and how that really affects the gameplay and changes the landscape radically. So first off, on the lighter side, working our way to the heavy side, I want to talk about Blockus. Now, this is probably a game that you've either avoided or missed out on or just thought it was just some kind of random kids kind of color game. But Blockus is really an interesting abstract game. This is coming from someone who doesn't really enjoy abstract games. Blockus is a game of almost like competitive Tetris. 
where up to four players are competing to use all of their tiles on a joint game board. Now, when you place your tile, and it can be numbers of different shapes and sizes based on these little kind of square cubes, when you place it, the next one has to be at the edge. So you can't kind of like go for like a perfect Tetris here, but you're kind of like building stairs. You're kind of snaking off along the way. And as you're doing this, you are kind of boxing other people out. You're trying to kind of cut off their territory there so that you have the most opportunity to drop as many tiles as possible in order to win the game. Very much like Santorini does too, as far as boxing opponents in the game. So that's a lot of fun. It's a quick playing game. There's a number of different versions of it. You can pick it up pretty inexpensive and it really truly is a lot of fun. Now, the next game I'm going to talk about is a little bit more on the heavier side of the Santorini mechanic, and that is Sorrow of the Seas. Now, you probably know Sorrow as far as the tile placement game where these little kind of pebbles move across the board based upon the different tracks that are kind of like, I wouldn't say cut into the board, but it seems like that they're cut into the board. So based upon how you place these tiles on the board, you're going to move or Everyone could possibly move because those tiles and those pathways are going to affect everyone that it touches. So it's a little bit as far as try to stay alive, just like in Blockus and just like in Santorini, but also at the same time, you are trying to strategically place the tiles in such a way that you run your opponents off the board. Now, what Sorrow of the Seas does that's a little bit different is there's actually a sea monster here in the game that also acts as a way of eliminating other players. I think this gives the game a little bit more flavor and dimension like Santorini in as far as not just kind of like these colored stones, but that you are actually a ship traveling these seas and you're trying to make it safely across them without running to somebody else or running into the sea monster. Now, when you place those tiles, a player can actually move the sea monster based upon the tile and you can knock people out, which is fun and fascinating. And actually, with a large player count, this game is very much engaging. Now, finally, I want to talk about a game that's definitely on the heavy side, and that's Acquire. Now, Acquire has recently been reprinted. You can even pick it up at maybe your local Target or big box store. And what you're doing with Acquire is you get a certain number of these kind of tiles. It's just really basic kind of plastic tiles, and you're going to have an opportunity to place them in a grid. Now, whatever the tile says is where it goes in the grid. Now, by placing a tile, you're building up a business. And as you're placing tiles next to each other, the business is growing. And then you may have the opportunity or other players have the opportunity is to claim that business as, let's say, X, for for example. Now, that person can then buy stocks in the company X, which is fun because as the game goes on, that company grows. You can also buy stocks there. So if you know that Anthony has a lot of stock in company X and you have a tile that matches that area, you don't want to add to his company because... Smaller companies become larger companies, which kind of gobble up other companies. But you might want to have a smaller company because if it gets gobbled up, you'll be able to sell your shares. It's really a fascinating, interesting game. And while it's an abstract, the stock market mechanic is really dynamic. The game is constantly evolving throughout. And it may seem you're doing well early, but it's challenging at the end. And it's a fascinating, fun game with pretty interesting pieces once you kind of get into the game. So that last game is Acquire. So, Anthony, what mechanic do you have for us from Santorini? 
Okay, so on my end, uh, the, the part I like about Santorini the most is the the abstract elements and the grid movement. So as somebody who played chess a lot when I was younger, this this is the part of these games that really captures me, is like that new twist, that new way of kind of utilizing the grid. So we can't talk about grid movement uh, in an abstract game without talking about the GIF series, and in particular, Yinch. This one actually just came back into uh, print, so it is actually available again after a very long time. Uh, and the basic idea here, and this is, again, a twist on the GIF series, at which I think there's like six or seven of these games, and they're all kind of compatible across these different mechanics that they utilize. But in this one, what you do is you will start the game with five different rings on the board. And then when you move one of those rings, you'll leave a marker behind. The markers are two-sided. They have a color on each side. If a marker is jumped over by a ring, then it flips and the color changes. And the goal here is just to get five of those in a row with their own color. When you do that, you get to take one of your rings off the board. And if you get three rings off the board, you win the game. So there's several different elements here. You're trying to manipulate the different colors of the pieces as you jump over them. You are trying to get them in the right order and then remove your own rings, but not necessarily in a way that's going to hurt you. You know, make sure you take the right one off the board. So uh, it's very, very interesting. It's very difficult to wrap your mind around when you first play it. But it's one of those games that has so much depth, like any good abstract game. And it's well, well worth tracking down, especially now that it's available and relatively inexpensive. Uh, so I definitely re recommend checking that one out. The next one here is Tosh Kalar. So this is a game I actually got really excited about uh, back in 2013 because it's from Vlada Shavatol, uh, and it looked had this beautiful fantasy artwork, and it looked like this big epic game, and it was an abstract. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just you know you had certain expectations from this guy who made Mage Knight and Through the Ages and um, all these other big epic games. And the idea of the game is, again, similar to Santorini, you do have the uh, the abstract element of the game where you're placing these pieces on the board and maneuvering for control. But then you also have a deck of cards. Um, there are four different factions, each with their own deck. And you can summon these legendary creatures that you can then put on the board and they allow you to do certain things. So you might be able to destroy certain pieces nearby or move your enemy's pieces. Um, you can force the enemy's pieces to fight each other. Uh, you can convert other people's pieces to your own. So it's, it, again, taking that idea of it's not just the abstract part of it, but we have special powers and everybody has their own unique powers that they can kind of throw into the ring. It's really, really fun. That hand management element of it uh, it you know adds a little bit extra to something that otherwise might have been a little underwhelming, and not even because it's a bad abstract, just because you know it it's got all this theme attached to it uh, in terms of the artwork. So that one's a lot of fun, and it's well worth tracking down as well. This one actually won um, the BGG Golden Geek for Best Abstract in 2013 over the next game, which I thought at the time should have won that award, and that is The Duke. So The Duke has been one of my favorite abstract games. It's probably, if you asked me, you know, eight months ago, I would have said this is my favorite before Santorini came in. And it is such a fantastic game. The idea of the Duke is very similar to chess. You have a single piece that you're trying to protect uh, on your own side and capture on the other side. You have this small little grid. I think it's five by five grid. And you start the game with a Duke tile and two footmen. Each tile is two sided. And on your turn, you get to either move one of those tiles 
using the patterns that are printed on the tile. Um, and then you flip it over once you've moved it, or you draw a new tile out of your bag and place it adjacent um, to your tiles. And so that's it. You just go back and forth. You are drawing tiles, um, capturing other tiles. If you, you know, if you can do a maneuver and land on top of the other player's tile, you capture it. And you're basically just trying to corner the Duke and capture it, very similar to chess. But the random element of what you pull out of that bag, uh, the memory element of trying to remember what's on the tiles that your opponent has, what's on the flip side of those, as they try to set themselves up for special moves, two or three moves in advance. It's so cool. And it comes with all these extra expansions. Some of them are thematic. There's a Robin Hood expansion. There was a Conan expansion. Uh, it's just so many cool things you can do with this very simple idea. They did re-implement this as Jarl, the Vikings tile lane game, so based on uh, the television series. And that was very similar to this and you know had a few refinements and a little more theme uh, twisted into it. But in the at the end of the day, it's an abstract game with these very cool tiles that you get to flip around and they're very big and chunky and fun to hold on to. <laughs> and so the Duke is another one. So if you are looking for the same kind of abstract grid management, and where you're trying to outmaneuver your opponent, uh, Yinch, the Duke, or Tosh Kalar. Those are three worth checking out. Okay, so let's talk about what you've been talking about this week. Anthony, what's our question of the week? All right, so with the huge pile of games uh, that I brought back from Origins, I got to thinking, what's the quickest way to learn all these? So I asked everybody, how do you learn board games? And I put this out, and a lot of people answered. It's, it's an interesting cross-section of different approaches to this, because I personally have evolved over time a little bit. But... Everybody else does it a little bit differently. So Nico, uh, he started off by saying, I avoid videos because they bore me. So he reads <laughs> the rules, then sets up the play with a minimum number of players, and then spends time trying to break the game rules and test different scenarios that might happen, then check the rules again. Would, would that be Rado? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Sounds like Rado to me, boys. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Uh, uh, Daniel says he also reads the rule book, uh, usually slowly and throughout the day going over parts I still find confusing. Then he'll watch a run through and a few reviews. And by that time, usually get how to play. A couple of people mentioned they just hand the rules off to someone else. Um, <laughs> Good one. <laughs> on Twitter, people were having fun tagging their friends and being like, I have this guy read it, which is just fair. I'm usually that guy. You're so that guy, man. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how funny I found it. But Jolene said she glances through the rules and gives it to her husband to read through while she tries to watch a 10 minute video or walkthrough. And there are a whole bunch more um, responses here. So everybody who did reply, thank you for sending in your responses. But it seems like a lot of people go with the read the rule book, watch the video, play the game um, on your own, which is exactly what I do. Okay. Uh, I, I set it up. I read the rule book. If there's a video, I'll watch it. Not necessarily to learn it, but just to make sure I didn't miss anything in the rule book, which frequently happens. I'll be like, oh, I don't remember that. And I'll go back and look it up. So that's how I tackle that. See, I'm the opposite. I will watch a video and then read the rule book because rule books typically, not always, but typically are pretty bad. They're written like stereo instructions. So <laughs> the video usually helps me kind of, you know, get the big picture and then kind of go down to the how the parts work. So when you're reading a rule book, it's like, Hey, if you move this piece over there, it does this thing. I'm like, yes. Yeah, so why? Why would that do that? Why would I want to do that? Why does that matter? So usually video helps a lot. Um, sometimes even a short review, just kind of going over what are the game mechanics and what are the victory conditions. Sometimes I'll skip to the back of the rule book and you know and see, oh, that's how you win. So therefore, these things are important. I think that's 
somewhat of a problem as far as how you know the rule books are kind of devised. But my favorite way of learning a board game is to go into a board game convention because they have teachers there. So yes, <laughs> although the one thing I learned about that is oh no, when you learn at a convention, yeah. you don't know how to set the game up. That's true. I went to teach Unearthed yesterday uh, at game night, and I was like, I don't actually know how many cards to put out. I don't know what to shuffle. I don't know what to remove from the bag. Sure. So we, we referenced the book quite a lot. Probably just read the thing over again. And I had played it before because I played it at the convention. So that is something to keep in mind. Don't get a little too much hubris thinking, I know how to play this because you you skipped the hard part um, and let someone else do it for you, as, I, as I've learned. okay so that's what everyone's saying if you'd like to join in on the conversation don't forget facebook twitter boardgamersanonymous.com our guild on board game geek our itunes and stitcher reviews you can jump on there and see what people are seeing what games they are playing don't forget our patreon account a little bit helps us a long way and our amazon affiliate link which you can kind of jump on buy your own things doesn't cost you one more penny more But magically enough, we get a little tiny kickback that helps us keep the show going. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. We'll always be sure that our second player leaves a spot open for you at the table. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.